All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to begin as we have began every week in this Wednesday night series. We're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to verse 10. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. We'll have the verses up on the screen as well. Word of God says this, 1 Timothy 4, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Two errors that we're trying to avoid as we think about this one phrase right at the end of 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 where Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. On the one hand, we want to avoid the error of legalism. Legalism would be the the error of training for godliness to try to earn or secure a place in heaven trying to earn our way with God. So we want to avoid that error. We also want to avoid the error of laziness, which is probably more common, most common in our context among Americans, and that's the complete absence of training for godliness in any way, shape, or form. Those are the two errors that we're trying to avoid. Now, just a couple of comments on this verse as I've thought about it over the last week. One of the things I really want you to see in this passage, the whole series is about training for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. One of the things I want to make sure you don't miss is that Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. And what you might expect Paul to say to Timothy is, Bodily training has some value in this life, and training for godliness has some value for the next life. But that's not what he says to Timothy. He says bodily training has some value. However, Timothy, training for godliness is a value in every way, both in this life, now, today, and in the life to come. And so we're thinking about training for godliness. If we're going to train for godliness, we need a goal. We need a definition of godliness. And one of the most helpful things I've come across in my reading is a definition of ungodliness. It's from a man named Jerry Bridges, a book called Respectable Sins. You've heard this quote week in and week out on Wednesday nights. I'm going to share it with you again tonight. And until we're done with this series, he says, Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of His will or of His glory or of your dependence on God. You can readily see that you can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. If that's ungodliness... Living with no thought of God, no thought of His will, no thought of His glory, no thought of your dependence on Him. Godliness would be the opposite. Would be living your life, thinking about God, thinking about His will, concerned about His glory, and recognizing your dependence on Him. So to train for godliness, Corey and I are teaching this Wednesday night series 12 weeks of a training regimen. And so far, we've talked about 
purity and friendship, prayer, worship, integrity, the tongue, work, and perseverance. Tonight we're going to talk about the church. What role does the church play in training for godliness? And then we're still going to talk about leadership, giving, and being a witness. Now as you look at that list of 12, one of the things I just want to note is that there are some things on that list that you can train on and you can work on and you can implement in your life all by yourself. But most of the things on that list you actually cannot do all by yourself. You cannot do in isolation. And this is just an interesting thing to observe. Americans are very individualistic. We want to think about what is our responsibility, and we don't want to think about what is anyone else's responsibility. We just want to do us and stay in our lane. And one of the things that you come across as you're training for godliness is you actually are going to have to bump up against other people in this process. You're going to have to be with other people. Other people have a role to play in helping you train for godliness, and that is certainly true as we think about the church. Now, before we just jump in and talk about church, so I thought about this this afternoon. I thought, I, I think we need to get our bearings in this big, wide world of church. And as we think about church and the role that church is going to play in us training for godliness, I think we need to be self-aware about who we are because there's lots of people who say they attend a church of lots of different stripes and varieties, and their experience in that church is very different than your experience in this church. And so just a little bit of self-awareness on the outset as we think about church. If you're not a history person or if this doesn't interest you, set a timer on your watch and clock back with me in like seven minutes or so. We're just going to talk for a minute about a word, a really important word. And I've actually had multiple people text me questions about this word in the last month or so. So this, I think, is relevant to all of us. I want to talk to you about the word evangelical. Evangelical. Sometimes you hear me say from the pulpit or from teaching, you know, evangelical churches like us. Uh, we're part of evangelicalism. And you may say to yourself, I have no idea what that means. I have good news for you. Most people don't have any idea what that means. In fact, really, really smart people argue about it back and forth, and they don't all agree about what it means. If you like cable news, and it's an election cycle somewhere, they're going to talk about evangelicals. And they're going to talk about evangelicals as a voting block, as if they're all exactly the same, and they're all going to vote the exact same way, and they just sort of bake that into projections and, and assumptions about elections. I don't want to talk to you about politics. I want to talk to you about this word evangelical, and I just want to help you understand what it means. If you trace this word historically, it's been used in at least, at least three ways. Okay, and I just want to put these in front of you. Number one, the original use of the word meant you were a Protestant, meaning you weren't a Catholic. So this would be the use of the word during the Protestant Reformation. You have people pop up and say, no, we're, we're evangelical. And what they meant was, we aren't Catholic. We're not part of the Roman Catholic Church. 
but we are something else entirely. And during the Reformation, that was very much in flux and being defined and fleshed out. Later, it came to mean we're not part of a a strong institutional state church like the Church of England. And there was people that were saying, you know, all these people in the Church of England, it's stuffy and it's formal and it's rigid and it's not from the heart. It's just ritual and routine. Yes, doctrinally, they're not Catholic, but we're not like them at all. And so you had people like George Whitfield and John Wesley and other people who said, no, we're, we're evangelical. We're not part of that formal, stuffy, institutional uh, form of church. Then you have this usage where it basically means you're conservative. You're not a mainline Protestant. Mainline Protestant churches, for the most part, not trying to stereotype it, it would be like uh, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopalian churches. Uh, And you're saying, no, we're not part of these mainline churches. Most of them have drifted liberal. We're not talking about politics, but we're talking about theology. They've drifted liberal in their theology. And so you have people that start saying, no, we're evangelical. We're not like those guys who deny the Bible and they don't believe there's really a God or they don't believe that God created everything. They believe there's all sorts of ways to heaven. We're not like those people. We're evangelical and we take the Bible seriously. So what does the word actually mean? What does the word evangelical actually mean? Well, it's based on two Greek words, two New Testament words. One of those words is euangelion, and that means good news. That's a noun. There's a verb related to it called euangelizo, and that means to proclaim good news. So that's the root word. And in that Greek word, you can see two pieces that help you understand the word. The prefix eu means good. So if you've been to a funeral, maybe somebody stood up and delivered a eulogy. That's a good word about a person's life. A eulogy. The second word you see in euangelion and euangelizo is the word angelos, which just means messenger. It's where we get the word angel, and basically an angel is a messenger, somebody who's doing God's bidding. So you understand you put these words together, and the idea in the original Greek word straight out of the New Testament is there's good news, and somebody is proclaiming that good news. What is an evangelical? Still haven't answered that question. Here's the best, most widely agreed upon definition of what an evangelical is. It comes from a man named David Bebbington, and he comes up with four things that are broadly and generally true of evangelicals. Number one, conversionism. Conversionism. And what he means is evangelicals tend to say, you must have a born-again, come-to-Jesus moment in your life. You weren't born a Christian. We didn't just bring you into this church as a baby. Although you were here as a baby, you weren't really a member here. You have to be born again. You have to make the conscious decision personally to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. So number one, conversionism. Number two, activism. And that doesn't mean like you're standing on the corner protesting, picketing, whatever. That means you're willing to take action about your beliefs. And in the context of evangelicalism, what that really means is missions. You're willing to give, you're willing to go, you're willing to share, you're willing to open your mouth and be a witness. 
and tell other people that they need to believe the good news about Jesus Christ. So number one, conversionism. Number two, activism. Number three, biblicism. That's his fancy word that means you believe the Bible is the word of God. You believe it's inspired by God and you believe that it's true. There's lots of churches, lots of people who would claim to be Christians who don't believe the Bible is inspired by God. They don't believe the Bible is perfectly true. But evangelicals have a high view of the Bible. They say, no, we want to listen to the Bible. We want to arrange our lives according to the Bible. Lastly, crucicentrism. And at the beginning of that word, you almost hear the word crucify. And that C-R-U-C or C-R-U-X is pulling out of a Latin root that means cross. So evangelicals are people of the cross. Evangelicals believe the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world is that the Son of God lived on this earth, lived a perfect life, and died a substitutionary death on the cross. And that's the thing you have to believe. You're not earning your salvation. You're not working for it. But based on what the Bible says... We think you need to be converted, repentance and faith, putting your trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. That's what an evangelical is in the broadest sense. So what is an evangelical? Let me try to summarize this for you if it's not confusing enough. It's not Catholic. It's not Orthodox. It's not mainline Protestant. And it's not liberal theologically. We're not talking politics. We're talking liberal theologically. Evangelicals are not those things. Now, evangelicals exist on a spectrum on some issues. Under this big umbrella of evangelicals, you will find non-charismatics and charismatics and anyone and everyone in between on that spectrum. You will find on this spectrum churches that are very traditional. Evangelical churches. Some of them would think that the music we had tonight was over-the-line crazy contemporary. You have gone way too far. They are very, very traditional. And you will find other evangelical churches that are far on the other spectrum when it comes to music and how they do things. Very, very contemporary. And they would come to our Sunday morning service and they'd say, you guys are a bunch of sticks in the mud. What's wrong with you? This is ridiculous. This is old school. What are you doing? Get with the times. Get with the program. So they exist on a spectrum. You find very small churches that are evangelical churches, and you find very big churches. Size doesn't matter. Style of music is not the issue that we're talking about. Uh, What we're talking about is Bebbington's four points in, in the world of evangelicalism. Now, here's why I tell you all of that. When you look at evangelical churches across the United States as a whole, There's a big problem. There's a lot of problems, actually. But let me just tell you two of the most common problems in evangelical churches in the United States of America. And I'm not really sure which one is a bigger problem. These are two big problems. I didn't put these on the screen, so you're not going to see them up there. But I'm just going to tell you the two big problems in evangelical churches today. Number one, many evangelical churches have made the decision that they are going to design their entire church life around lost people, non-Christian people. And as a church, we're going to do anything and everything that might make 
lost non-Christian people come here and feel comfortable here and not feel awkward here. And that's a major, major problem in evangelical churches today. It takes you down a road where you will do anything and everything completely unhitched from anything that the Bible says about church life. Here's a second problem, really big problem amongst evangelical churches. There are churches that have dug their heels in on a particular style or era or external way of how church looks, and they are absolutely refusing to move on even though they're about to die. They are so set in doing, thing, a, doing things a certain way. It has to be done this way. I'm not talking about biblical things. I'm just talking about personal preference about what happens at church and how you do church. And they're saying, nope, this is the only way. This is the faithful way. It's how we've always done it. We're not going to move on. Everyone else, you're a bunch of sellouts. We're sticking with it. And they're literally many, many, many of these churches are going to die in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And that's not the only reason, but that's part of the reason. Two major, major issues. One, they make lost people the focus. Another, they make tradition the focus. Both of them fail to make God the focus. Both of them guilty. This sounds so weird to say it out loud. Guilty of ungodliness at church. Because there's not a focus on God or His will or His glory or our dependence on Him. There's only a focus on lost people or there's only a focus on tradition. And what we're saying tonight is we are training for godliness and church is part of how we as individuals train for godliness. And we have to be aware of what church life is like where we live. Guess what? You go to Kenya, they have other problems in their churches. Not exactly the same problems, but they have their own problems over there. We're talking about here, you and me, in the United States of America, in the fringe of the Bible Belt, sort of. These are issues that we have to deal with. Ungodliness at church. And we do not want to be guilty of ungodliness at church. So, let's talk about training for godliness at church. First the why, then the how. Why should we do it first? How do we do it second? You noticed we've sang the doxology every Wednesday night. It's a Trinitarian song. I don't know if you've noticed this. We're several weeks in now. Every night in training for godliness, we're talking about the character of God. We're talking about the work of Jesus. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're taking a Trinitarian approach to training for godliness. So number one, the character of God. The story of creation reminds us that God created people for fellowship with Him and with each other. Almost every week, Corey and I have gone back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Because those chapters are foundational for having a biblical worldview. All the Bible's important for having a biblical worldview, but the opening chapters of the Bible are absolutely essential. They're foundational in making sure that you have a biblical worldview. Understanding that God created human beings in His own image, 
so that he could have a relationship with them. Understanding that the first not good thing in all of the universe was that man was alone. Before there was sin, God said there was something not good. God said it's not good that man be alone. So he created a helper fit for him, suitable for him, so that he would not be alone, so that he would have a friend and a companion. In Genesis 3, after everything goes off the rail, tells us that God used to come and walk with this first couple and have fellowship with them. That was God's design in the beginning, that there be community, that we not be alone. This is one of the challenges the Bible presents to Americans because we are so individualistic. The Bible says, no, you're actually created to live in community with other people, in a family, in a neighborhood, in a church, in a nation. You're actually created to be with other people and to have a relationship with them. So God created people for fellowship with him and each other. Number two, the story of Israel reminds us that God created a nation to experience a special covenant relationship with him. This is a story of the Old Testament just boiled down to two simple sentences. God created people in the beginning to have fellowship with him and with each other. And then very early, Genesis 12, God called to a man named Abram, and he said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you a nation, my special people, a chosen nation. What did God say to Moses when he appeared to him at the burning bush? Moses, go get my people. They're my people. They're living in Egypt under Pharaoh's thumb, and they belong to me. What was Moses supposed to say to Pharaoh on behalf of the Lord? Let my people go. Not just let those Hebrews go. Not just let the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go. Let my people go. These were God's special chosen people. If you want some vocabulary words, the Hebrew word is edah. E-D-A-H. Edah. A congregation of people. An assembly of people. If you want the Greek word that would translate edah, it would be the Greek word Ecclesia, E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A, a congregation or an assembly of people. That was God's plan, that he have a special covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, with the Hebrew people, Abraham's family. So that's the character of God. That's what he set out to do. It's what we know about what he wanted. Now let's talk about sin. The disobedience of Adam and Eve resulted in exile. Genesis 3, they had to leave. They rebelled against God. They rejected his authority in their lives. And God said, you've got to get out of here. You can't stay. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden. They had to leave the very presence of God. They experienced what the prophet Isaiah describes in Isaiah 59.2 when Isaiah said to the Hebrew people many, many, many years later, your sins have made a separation between you and God. So that his eyes don't see and his ears don't hear. Does that mean God literally can't see or hear sin? No, it's just the 
prophet's way. It's a poetic way of saying your sin really does separate you from God. It introduces a break in your relationship. Adam and Eve experienced that. They were sent into exile. Secondly, disobedience of Israel resulted in exile. God called these people to be a nation. And he warned them from day one, if you rebel against me, if you chase other gods, if you pursue idols, if you refuse to keep my commandments, I will kick you out of this land and send you into exile. They did all of those things, and God did exactly what he said he would do. He sent the Hebrew people into exile. Psalm 78, I commend it to you. Maybe you could read it tonight or this week. It's just a shocking, it's a jarring psalm that talks about the amazing things that God did for His people and they forgot. And God did more amazing things for them and they rebelled. And God was kind to them and He provided for them and they didn't listen. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. God was faithful to His people. They were completely faithless to God. So, how does this come down to us? Our hearts are warped and selfish. There's lots of particular sins we could talk about here. Let's just talk about this. Our hearts are warped and selfish. Our relationships with each other are broken. It's not just our relationship with God that's been impacted by sin, but our selfishness breaks down our horizontal relationships with each other. Adam and Eve. Their relationship with God is broken, and immediately their relationship with each other is broken. They're ashamed to be together. They're blaming each other. Their children start murdering each other. Vertically, there's a breach in relationship, and horizontally, there's a breach in relationship. And one of the fundamental issues is selfishness. So I'm going to go back to Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. He says this about selfishness. Selfishness is a difficult sin to expose because it's so easy to see in someone else but so difficult to recognize in ourselves. I imagine some of you, I will not ask you to raise your hand, but I imagine some of you as we just introduced the topic of selfishness thought, man, I know some selfish people. I, I, can, I can fill in some blanks here. How, how many do you want? You want five? You want ten? You want twenty? I work with a bunch of selfish people. I live with a bunch of selfish people. It's difficult to expose. It's easy to see in someone else. It's difficult to recognize in ourselves. I don't want to give you the whole chapter from the book. It's really good. So i just give you four words. Bridges says, here's how you see it in yourself. Number one, consider your talking. Your talking. When you talk to other people. He says, what do you talk about? Do you talk about what you're interested in or do you talk about what other people are interested in? might reveal selfishness. Secondly, he says, think about your time. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we all have the exact same amount of time every day. We don't all have the same responsibilities to take care of in that time, but we all get the same amount of time. If you assume that your time is more valuable than someone else's time, that might reveal selfishness. Thirdly, think about your money. We do not all have the same amount of money. But if you think your money is really yours, rather than it being 
God's on loan to you for which you will give an account. Bridges says selfishness might be an issue. Lastly, he says others. Considerate people think about others. Inconsiderate people think about self. He brings up the, the point that if you constantly critique other people for being stupid, meaning they don't do things your way, you might be a selfish person. Thinking that you're at the center of everything and everyone else is wrong in everything that they do. Just something to think about. Selfishness. So let's talk about Jesus. Jesus' life and death are the ultimate example of selflessness. Not selfishness, but selflessness. I think it'd be good to read Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we'll just go from verse 1 to 5. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition. There's selfishness breaks down our relationship with God, and it breaks down our relationships with each other. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. What would that look like? Well, Paul tells you in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, found in human form, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then he's been highly exalted. The life and the death of Jesus is the ultimate example of selflessness. And Paul commends it to the church in Philippi. He commends it to the church at Emmanuel. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Count other people more significant than yourself. How do you do that? We follow the example of Jesus who did that for you in his life and his death. Secondly, Jesus' life and death established the church. And I'm going to leave you to read these verses because of time. I just want to note something that often gets missed in American evangelical churches. We often talk to people about Jesus dying on the cross to save you. Singular. You the individual. You hear preachers emphasize this. He died just for you. You were on his mind. You were on his heart. Jesus died you. He will forgive you of your sins. It's all packaged in a very individualistic way. And guess what? Those are true things. Jesus died for sinners. Just like you. That's 100% true. 
And it's 100% true that you have to come to the point in your life where you believe that that's true and you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus. And I can't do it for you. No one in this room can do it for you. Your parents, your grandparents can't do it for you. A church can't do it for you. There is an individual decision that has to take place. This is what I'm saying to you. The New Testament doesn't just say that Jesus died for you, the individual. There are numerous passages in the New Testament that actually say Jesus died to establish a church. What's the word there? In Greek, it's ekklesia. If you're a Hebrew speaker, it's edah. Jesus shed his blood, Acts 20, to purchase a church, not a building, a people, not just a person, but a vast congregation, a vast assembly. So vast, the book of Revelation describes it as a multitude that could never be numbered from every tribe, nation, language, people, and tongue. Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, established the church. Thirdly, Jesus' life and death provided both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. And this is what we read earlier from Ephesians 2. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus provides reconciliation. And that reconciliation extends vertically in your relationship with God. Those of you who were far off, He brought near. Gentiles like us and Jews who were close to the covenant. He brought them near too. Vertically, he's reconciled us to the Father. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, we read it earlier, that the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile has been torn down. And where there was two, now there's one. There's one church. Jesus established that in his life, in his death, vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Now let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, American evangelicals, we tend to think about this very individualistically. And we say to you, you, the individual, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Guess what? That's true. It's true. It's also true corporately. And the only reason it's true of you individually is because you're part of the ecclesia or the edah, the congregation or the assembly. The Holy Spirit of God indwells the people of God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, God dwelt with His people in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And in the New Covenant, He dwells with His church. Not the building. Not a building, but His congregation, His people. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gifts believers for building up the church. So in this point, we're not going to go down the rabbit trail of thinking about spiritual gifts and controversies about sign gifts and miracle gifts and tongues and all those things. That's a lesson for a whole nother night. You look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. These things are not debatable. Number one, the Holy Spirit apportions gifts to believers as He will. I don't distribute spiritual gifts. God didn't ask you which spiritual gift you wanted or didn't want. There's no Google form to fill out that says, oh, I'd really like this one. I'll pass on that one. The Holy Spirit is in charge of giving spiritual gifts to God's people. 
Secondly, also really clear, the purpose of having a spiritual gift is the building up of the church. It has a corporate purpose. It's not just for you individualistically. It's not first and foremost for your family, but it's actually for building up the church, for establishing the church. So that's the 1 Corinthians passage. The Galatians 5 passage, the Holy Spirit. I just want you to think about the fruit of the Spirit for just a minute. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Remember earlier we said that some of the things we're training on, some of them you could kind of do alone, but most of them you actually need other people. Just think about the things on this list. Almost everything up there involves others, not just you. If the Holy Spirit's going to produce these things in your life, He's not going to produce them with you isolated, siloed as an individual, but He's going to produce them in you where you're in community with other people, both in your home and certainly as part of the church. So that's the why. We should think about our horizontal relationships and the value of the church, the importance of the church. Now let's talk about how to train for godliness in the church. I want you to read the Bridges definition with me one more time. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of His will or of His glory or of one's dependence on God. We're talking not just about you as an individual, we're talking about a church. And I'm saying to you that in our circles, there's two big problems. Focus on tradition. Focus on lost people. Not a focus on God. And so in this context, I would fill that last sentence in and I would say you can readily see then that someone can be part of a respectable church experience. Something that is called church. What did you do Sunday morning? I went to church. Really, was there a focus on God? His will? His glory? Your dependence on Him? No, there was a lot of focus on tradition. No, there was actually a lot of focus on lost people. Well, that was ungodliness in a church context. So the first thing I would set before you is this. Our churches ought to be God-centered rather than man-centered. And I'm not even going to give you a proof verse. I'm just going to say, I think this is the overall teaching of the Bible and what it means to be part of the people of God is that we are God-centered and we're not man-centered. Let me just acknowledge, there's not a pastor in Odessa or the state of Texas who would argue with that point. You understand? There's not a church leader who would stand up and say, actually, we want to be man-centered and we don't care about God. No one's going to do that. But look at what happens in the church. And be discerning and say, what's the focus here? Listen to the preaching. What's the focus of the preaching? Is the focus of the preaching the pastor and cute little funny stories he tells you about his life? Is the focus of the preaching you and how you can improve your life? Or is the focus of the preaching 
God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen to the singing and ask yourself, what's the focus of this singing? Is the focus of this singing us and how great we are and all the wonderful things we're going to do for God? Or is the focus of this singing God and how great He is and all of the wonderful things He's done for us? Listen to the praying of the people. What's the first inclination in the, in the praying of the people? Is it to jump right in and to say, God, we need you to do this and this and this? Or is it to jump right in and the first inclination is to say, God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God-centered, not man-centered. Number two, individually we must be committed to membership and attendance. Membership and attendance. Acts chapter 2. We'll move through these points quickly. Acts 2 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you jump up to verse 41... It's the conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people joined in the new member class. They added them. And those who were added were devoted. They were added. Membership. And they were devoted. That's commitment. When you and I think about people who are devoted to things... We often think about people who are devoted to a hobby. Maybe you think about someone, you say, oh, it's a devoted husband, a devoted wife, a devoted mom, a devoted dad. But often we think about hobbies. I'll be honest with you, often we think about sports teams. Who are you devoted to in the world of sports? Some of you, I know the answer to that. Some of you know the answer to that for me. You can usually tell who people are devoted to when it comes to sports, because they wear their colors. They're not secret about it, unless you're a Cowboys fan. You might keep it a secret, but everyone else, you say, no, I'm actually proud to be. I'm proud to be this fan. I'm going to wear the shirt. I'm going to wear the hat. I want people to know about it. You participate, not on the field, but as you watch, you participate. You get up. You throw your hands in the air. You scream at the screen as if they can hear you. You coach from your recliner. You're involved in what's happening. You're devoted. You are financially invested in going. And if it's cold, you don't complain as much as you complain about this room being cold. Or if it's hot, you don't mind it. It's fine. We'll sit out in the heat. It's okay. We don't, who needs air conditioning? When there's celebration, you share it together. When there's losing, you commiserate together. You're devoted. You read Acts chapter 2, it says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to being together. They're devoted to praying together. They're devoted to awe in worship. They're devoted to helping the poor. They're devoted to going to the temple. They're devoted to worshiping together. And you come down to the end of that little section. Look at verse 47. 
the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can I just be honest with you? We talked about evangelicalism. Let's, let's bring that tent down a little bit smaller to just the Southern Baptist Convention that we're a part of. As a whole, Southern Baptists are really bad, really bad. I'm a Southern Baptist. Collectively, we're really bad about thinking we can add people to a church. That's not how it works. We can't add people. There's nothing we can do to add people. God's the one who adds. They devoted themselves to certain things. They were godly in their approach to church. And the Lord was the one who added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I cannot manufacture that. No church program, no church event, no sermon, no great speaker, no book, no conference, no YouTube channel, no podcast can add people to the kingdom. God does that. And He does it and He sees fit to do it when His people are devoted to the right things. So, Committed to membership, committed to attendance. Last, we must be committed to giving and service. Giving and service. I'll let you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I think it's the, the longest, most helpful passage in the whole Bible about giving and stewardship and how we think about our money. Paul tells the church, you need to be generous in your giving. You need to be sacrificial in your giving. You need to be joyful in your giving. It's a beautiful passage. Service, we've referenced 1 Corinthians 12, spiritual gifts and serving. These are things that we have to be committed to. We're committed to those things because we're part of a church. We're part of each other. And the giving and the serving and the membership and the attendance and the God-centeredness, that's... That's who we're called to be and what we're called to do. And when a church comes together and does those things, the Lord will add those who are being saved. That's His work. Our work is to be serious about training for godliness and acknowledging we can't just do it individually. Church is not just an optional add-on bonus to our spiritual lives, but it's actually essential in what Christ came to accomplish, and what the Spirit is doing in the people of God, and how God is at work in our lives to help us train for godliness. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that we would be serious about training for godliness, and that you would convince us and convict us that physical training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, both in this life and the life to come. And Father, we're grateful that you've not only saved us and brought us into your family, but you've saved us and you've brought us into your family together. And you have sent your son to purchase a church. You've sent your spirit to dwell in a church, in a congregation, in an assembly, in a people. What a privilege to be part of, of the church. And Lord, we pray in our church, that you would use the people here, the programs here, the singing here, the preaching here, the teaching here, the fellowship here, the giving here, Lord, that you would use all of these things to make us more godly. Father, we do not want to be man-centered in the things that we do here, the way that we think about church, but we want to be God-centered. And Father, 
when other churches around us uh, miss that mark, we pray that we would be focused not on being like other churches, but we would be focused on being like you. When we gather together, that you would be the center of our thinking. Your will would be what we're concerned about. Your glory is what we're celebrating. And that we acknowledge consistently our dependence on you. So Lord, be honored as we lift our voices and we sing on the way out tonight. We're grateful for the time to be together. Grateful for church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.